Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha, one of your co-moderators. What's up, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. How's it going? We're here for episode 60. You guys know how we do it. We're going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send me your questions and I'll get those over to our team. If you're active on social media, make sure you're following us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. But let's get right into it. Back over to you, Keisha. Fantastic. Thank you, Mandy. All right. If you're live with us here and you have a question, feel free to type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or I can ask for you. We got Jason in the studio today. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Spring's yes. kicking in here. Yes, I know. We've got some sunshine in Northern California. Finally, monsoon season might be over. Um, but we have something very exciting we want to show folks today. Let's let's get into it. Our, our new VPD calculator is officially live. Right on. Thanks for kicking us off. I'm going to share my screen here and we're going to take a look at the VPD calculator. So obviously, we've seen quite a few of these over the internet and we get asked fairly commonly. Uh, you know, which one's best or what's a good link to it. Uh, good link, vpd.arroya.io. And that's where this chart lives. So we built this out and it looks fairly similar, a little bit refined to some of the charts you might get used to seeing. Some people use Excel sheets for them. Uh, this is nice and interactive. So all of these uh, different areas represent uh, good places to be. So this, this dark green is usually ideal um, VPD. And we've got some options over on the right side. First thing I'm going to do is turn it on to Fahrenheit because I'm not as used to using Celsius. And uh, basically what we can do is we can either choose an area on the left side. So for me, if I wanted my temperature to be about 80 degrees, I could click into here and see that my ideal relative humidity would be about 72 degrees. And we can also change the slider on the right and it's going to adjust either the y-axis or the x-axis or the offset uh, based on the settings to the right. So um, as usual, I like to you know go for a target temperature and then set my humidity in the room according to VPD charts. Um, and we've talked a lot of times about the ideal VPD for plants throughout their growing life cycle. And for cannabis, usually um, you know during flower, we like to be between about 1 and 1.4. So typically during the start of flower, we'll be around that 1.0 range for VPD and we'll start to dry things out a little bit towards the, the end of the flower and be up towards that 1.4. Maybe we have some questions on how this works or why it's important. Yeah, let's talk about it in the broader, when it comes to crop steering, we do get a lot of questions about optimal VPD range. So yeah, how does this calculator help some of the cultivators who typically ask those questions? Sure. So, uh, you know, let's start off the beginning of the cycle. Maybe we're shooting for a daytime temp of like 82 degrees. And so I'll go in here and select, let's say air temp, 81 and a half. That's pretty close to 82. Um, and for me, I kind of like to think of what's an acceptable range because even in the best, the facilities, we're going to see some amount of, of swing 
and, and drift based on the set points and and how well our HVAC can maintain those settings. So maybe in this case, I'd be like, yeah, during the daytime, I want to be between about 80 and 82 degrees or 83 degrees, um, depending on if I'm an HPS or LEDs, we'll, we'll have a little bit different target ranges to start with, but keeping those temperatures nice and high, um, encouraging, uh, you know, nice metabolic rate in those plants, a little bit warmer temperatures are going to help them photosynthesize as fast as possible, um, at the beginning. So, uh, in this case, it'd be like, uh, air temperature, kind of at about 80.6. Um, and if I want to maintain a 1.0 VPD, we can see there uh, across the top, my VPD with these settings would be about 1.03. So my air temps between 80 and 82, I'd want my relative humidity to be uh, between 70 and I'll shift this over and go to 82, 82.4. That's all right. And we can see I'm going to have to decrease my relative humidity just a little bit, um, 69%. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, these are rough numbers. Uh, you know, if I'm trying to hit 1.0, well, 1.03 is really not very far off. So pretty easy just to, you know, make those adjustments and, and use those temperatures. And then maybe we wanted to do a little bit later in flower and we want to induce a nighttime differential, uh, encourage swimming at the cyan and purpling color in the plant. And maybe we'd have a, a nighttime temp down to, you know, like 76 degrees or 77 degrees. Let's go 77. Well, if I'm still shooting for that 1.0, um, maybe I'm going to be trying between 1.0 and 1.2 here. Uh, maybe we're saying where we two or three, then let's adjust that VP or, um, that humidity and hit that, uh, relative humidity at, at 83 and uh, air temperature at 77. And then if we go the other way for the high side, uh, air relative humidity at 78, air temp at 77. And one thing to notice here is I haven't been adjusting my leaf temp. Make sure that you get that right as well. Um, here in a little bit, we'll discuss why leaf temperature is so important for B BPD. We get questions all the time about, hey, you know, how come we're not adjusting for leaf VPD? And, um, you know, really what it comes down to is we aren't, you know, we don't have a sensor right now that is providing those leaf temperature readings into Arroyo. A leaf temperature is not a super easy reading to acquire as far as accurately addressing what the entire plant population, um, the spatial differences lower in the canopy, um, can affect. So, uh, as far as leaf temperature, a lot of times if I don't know it, I'll just kind of keep it set pretty close to what my air temp is and, um, go from there. If you do have a infrared thermometer or uh, best yet, uh, thermal imaging camera, then, uh, get an idea of what your average leaf temp is and use that for a, a leaf vapor pressure deficit. Um, obviously, you know, some of the things that impact uh, how the plant is feeling as far as a leaf VPD is, uh, it's going to be, you know, temperature of your irrigation, uh, going to be amount of airflow, and it's going to be most importantly, the temperature of the room. And so the reason that we're usually talking about the, um, temperature reading from the Atmos 14, their climate station is because that's the information that you can capture. And it's, 
also the VPD that's going to affect your leaf temperature um, VPD the absolute most. Um, so it's like, hey, here's here's an optimal variable. Here's the controlling variable. Let's take a look at the controlling variable so that we can achieve what the optimal variable needs to be at. This is an awesome tool, um, and it looks it looks great. I can't wait to play around with this myself. Um, we are getting some comments over on YouTube. Iron Armor wrote in, "Let's go, VPD calculator, looking awesome." Um, how can I account for the leaf surface for leaf surface temperatures now, though? Well, I guess this is a good time to segue into some of the work that I have done in the past uh, during my time as a cultivator, and I'll just bring up well the easy question. Get yourself a thermal camera. Uh, it's going to be by far the most efficient way uh, to use your time valuably. Uh, if you go in infrared thermometer, yeah, that's great. But what you're doing is taking a lot of very small spot readings. And realistically, you need to be taking a pretty large number of those to get a good idea. Uh, thermal camera is going to get you a full picture of what you're trying to deal with. And I'll just bring up some of that uh some of that imagery that I've done in the past to get an idea of what is leaf surface temperature, what does it look like across the plants? And in this case, I was using a FLIR. Um, thermal imagery cameras can be fairly expensive, uh, anywhere from you know $200 for a very low quality one to up to maybe 10 grand or, or above if you want a high quality one. In most cases, it's going to be about the resolution of that camera. In this case, this is fairly low resolution, as you can see. Um, cheaper ones are going to be like 60 by 80 pixels and so that's the number of infrared dots that it's showing on the screen obviously the higher the resolution in one of these cameras is going to present a more clear picture um, but that being said this is obviously something that we can't see with our eyes and so this tool is is providing me an idea of what is the range of these temperatures across my canopy across my plant etc um, in this case we're looking directly at the bud and the bud is not the flower. The flower is not transpiring nearly as much as the leaves are. And we can see here at the top of the canopy, our leaves are the warmest where the solar radiation from our lights, from the sunshine in this case, because this was a mixed light greenhouse, is heating up those leaves more. Uh, down in the canopy, we've got plants that are, uh, or leaves that are still transpiring, yet not getting as much solar radiation. So they're cooler. Uh, here's just kind of a side shot. Uh, I, I really like this one because we get to see the outlines. It's almost looked like it looks like it's photo edited, but this is a, a non-edited representation from that that thermal that thermal imaging. And in this case, we can see. All right, my my point measurement here is at sixty eight point two, and my range of temperatures in this picture is sixty seven to seventy four point three. So in this case, the the black spots down here are at about 67 degrees Fahrenheit and some of these flowers are up into 74.3 and this rolls directly into why is leaf temperature a little bit hard to capture because obviously in this picture I have a range of um, you know 7.3 degrees difference and how many uh, spot measurements with an infrared camera would I need to take to in, in order to accommodate for that 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 variation and, uh, you know, obviously good growers are going to do their best to get as many measurements and kind of get a sample curve and understand, all right, where is my mean of that, that data set that I'm pulling. And, and in this case, uh, obviously we're getting hundreds of, of pixels, hundreds of thermal readings in, in one shot. 
So I, I definitely recommend them. Uh, I can guarantee that you're going to learn something about your garden and your facility probably within the, the first few days of having one and, and using that, uh, that imaging in the, in the facility. So one of the cool things as well is a lot of these will take, uh, two pictures. So it'll take a, a typical camera picture uh, at the exact same time that it takes a thermal picture. And so you can see on the left side, this is what the human eye is observing. This is obviously what we're used to, uh, taking a picture of. And I don't know the different leaf temperatures in, in that picture. Uh, but on the right side, it gets a, a good idea of, of how much variance there is against my canopy. And uh, through my pictures here, you can get an idea of how different angles, different shots going in deep into the canopy, taking them from uh, a raised position is going to affect how much you're capturing in that picture and, and what your leaf temperature is. Um, another challenging thing here is, you know, I'm looking at uniformity. I'm I like to use two words. We have uniformity and consistency. And for me, uniformity is a snapshot in time. Right now, what what's the difference across my canopy or my room as far as variables go? Temperatures, uh, how well my plants are drinking. All right, this one over here is drinking great. This one's not drinking good. My consistency needs improvement. Or excuse me, my uniformity needs improvement. Um, and then when I talk about consistency, that is over time. And so with something like an Atmos 14, we can look at our consistency over time. Sure, it's still a point measurement, so we only have one snapshot of uniformity in that room. Uh, hopefully, if you're in larger rooms, you have more uh, climate stations in there. You can get an idea of what your uniformity is. And uniformity usually is based on how much airflow do I have, what uh, are the locations of my HVAC units, those types of things. And then consistency is how are they operating over time? Right. And so when we're looking at a VPD measurement from our climate station, we're looking at what does the consistency look like? All right. Right now, are we in check with where we want to be on our VPD in five minutes? Are we at that uh, same check? Are we within our limits? Five minutes later, five minutes later. And our data intervals are actually three minutes. So that's what I should have said. But in this case, uh, we're looking at only a snapshot of uniformity. So taking these thermal images uh, across the different time frames in the grow cycle is also a great practice. You know, what does my leaf temps look like before I'm producing flower? And then what do my leaf temps look like at the very end of flower? Uh, and even on a smaller picture, we can think about, all right, what do my leaf temps look like in relationship to my irrigations? Uh, what do my leaf temps look like uh, before my plants start transpiring, you know, right after lights on, before photosynthesis is fully engaged? It's, those are just a lot of the variables to think about when we start incorporating measurements like leaf temperature. Jason, these pictures are amazing. <laughs> They're just really cool. There's such a there's a whole universe in that plan. It's really wonderful to see. Also, what I'm hearing is like you're really emphasizing the importance of crop registration. Like you, if you don't know some benchmarks and some values from what you're doing, the VPD calculator can't really like support you that well. Yeah. You, you know, when you think about, um, yeah, there's an old saying garbage in garbage out and our VPD calculators, just the same. If some of the, the information that you're putting in there isn't relative to, to what's actually going on, then you, you may have some challenges setting that, um, temperature or humidity correctly for that environment. 
I got another question for you. And we've, we've had this asked before, but do you have, um, are there any particular brand or models uh, that you recommend for taking leaf temperature? You know, I've only worked with uh, FLIR and they've, I mean, they've been a long, longstanding uh, industry leader with them. Uh, Fluke makes lots of thermal imaging units. I think there's a company called Seek that lets you plug them into your phone and use them. Um, there, there's definitely a couple newer ones out there as well. In this case, you know, this, I took this from up on top of a ladder and uh, we can see how cool the floor, that concrete floor is, uh, especially right here where we've got some water that's sitting on the floor. That water is evaporating and providing evaporating cool to that, that concrete surface. And so it's, you know, by far the coolest spot in here where we can see it's black. And then down in on the canopy, um, we get to see yet again, those colas and, deeper into the canopy, a little bit cooler temperatures. So something like this would be a, a great way because I'm shooting about the the median color uh, of that that area and we could see, hey, I'm at about you know, 69.3 degrees, oops, um, with highs of about 74 over on the right side and lows at, at 67. So we could be like, all right, let's shoot for the median number as our leaf surface temperature that we want to use in our VPD chart. So in this case, I'd be like, let's use you know, right about 70 degrees, um, maybe 71 degrees. And I only had to take one sample to make that judgment. So, um, you know, rather than spending your time using infrared measurements, um, which there are some relatively inexpensive infrared radiometers, uh, handheld radiometers, and there's a massive difference in quality on those. It's kind of like the hygrometers that we see. A lot of those, uh, you know, sub $50 hygrometers that we're so used to walking into a grow room and, and looking at the temperature and the relative humidity and then the highs and lows. Uh, you know, a lot of those are working off of a range of plus or minus seven degree temperature and plus or minus you know, up to 10 degrees relative humidity is what I've seen on some of those specs. And, uh, you know, that, that accuracy just, doesn't help you make good choices for what the plant feels. And this one's kind of cool. I, I think one of my other favorite parts of this I've always wanted to do some work with is when we're looking down here, we can uh, basically count the colas and we can see the grid as well. So we know how many colas per, uh, per square inch that we have popping up through our canopy here. And I'll roll through the rest of these fairly quick until I see something I want to talk about. Uh, this is a side shot. This was in, in some well overgrown moms. Um, kind of fun just to see, Hey, when we get even deeper in the canopy away from the aisle or close to the wall, we have uh, even cooler, probably less airflow, less um, radiation hitting the plants down in there. On top of uh, what you can do with leaf surface temperature on, on thermal imaging, it's just a good piece of equipment to have because we can start looking at how our drippers work, uh, how well our fans are working. Do we have equipment that's starting to overheat? Uh, just checking on maintenance, you know, facility operations type of, of stuff that we can't necessarily evaluate very easily just as a human being. Uh, so in this case, we can see, you know, the top of those pots are uh, a lot warmer just from, from some, some solar hitting them. This is one of the mom pots, uh, same kind of thing, you know, some solar radiation hitting the top of the pot here. It's definitely warmer probably cause it's a little bit drier towards the top of the pot. Um, here on the outside, we can see it might be cooler down here as well, bottom just because we have some, uh, 
some evaporation coming out of the side of this net pot. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, things like, you know, drippers, uh, in this case, this is a really easy red flag that, uh, stripper on my right, hopefully it's your guys' right. The one with the much smaller, cool spot. So this was actually right while we were irrigating. And in this case, we can see that the irrigation water was probably about, you know, 63 degrees, 62, 63 degrees coming in. And, uh, here by this stake, we've got a pretty big, uh, spread out a pretty big gradient of that cooler water. We can see that, Hey, the cool water's coming in and it's, um, reducing the temperature in that on this one, we can see that there's not a lot of cool water coming in and that was a clogged emitter. Pretty, uh, pretty easy to find just, uh, by walking around, scanning it and, uh, and fixing those up. Uh, kind of a fun picture here as well. Uh, I did want to point out the temperature of this fan on the wall. Um, you know, the fans are, they're a liability if they, they get too hot and, uh, and start to fail. Um, so, you know, keep an eye across the room. Hey, do we have some really old fans that are, are getting hotter? Have we changed models? And some of them are, are running, um, beyond the, the ranges that we want to, uh, do we need to just clean those out to make sure they're getting good airflow through the motors? All those are things to kind of think about beyond just the plant. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the better the facility can operate, the better that we can grow. And here's another, um, this was a, an exhaust fan in a greenhouse and right here in the, just below the fan, we can actually see the motor. It's this bright yellow spot right here, about 90 degrees. And, uh, we can see the belt going up to, to drive that fan and we can see, Hey, right around the fan we're uh, we've got pretty cool temperatures pushing out. Um, so just, just, a a good reason to invest in, in some equipment like this. So didn't want to get us too distracted from the, the VPD chart, but I know that we get lots of questions about leaf surface temperature and, um, wanted to, you know, get the real answer out there as far as, you know, it, it, Yes, you absolutely should be taking that into consideration. Um, getting a great measurement of your leaf surface temperature isn't necessarily as easy and fast as getting it uh, from your air. And you can also change your leaf surface temperature by utilizing the air VPD. So get an idea of you know what your target leaf surface temperature, um, leaf surface VPDs are, and you know set your HVAC systems based on the the VPD readings that you're getting out of Arroyo for the air to achieve those appropriate VPDs around the plant. Wow, there it is. That is an amazing overview. Thank you so much for that, Jason. And just a reminder to anybody who joined us a little late, our VPD calculator is now live. You can find it at vpd.arroya.io. I'll drop the link again into the chat, but I mean, wow, talk about, talk about a crash course. Um, okay, I think we're gonna move on to some live questions. And then Mandy, it looks like there's quite a bit of action happening over on YouTube, yeah? Yeah, um, so we, we sent you guys a poll, but I do wanna get back to Iron Armor. He said, nice, definitely need to pick up a thermal imaging camera for the garden. Yeah, we do recommend it. Um, and then over to that poll. So we asked y'all, where are you watching from today? So what part of the world? We asked West Coast, East Coast, or other. 33% um, are watching from the West Coast, 17% from the East Coast, and 50% from other. So I think that's other continents, other countries. That's really cool. Thanks, you guys. Um, and then moving on to some of our questions. So we got a question over on YouTube. Do you notice that plants with soil sensors dry back faster and yield higher? 
Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, so physically, the soil sensor is not going to change how fast that plant um, dries back. Now, uh, if you're optimizing the conditions for the readings that you're getting from that plant, it might absolutely uh, operate to the best performance. Uh, so you know, anything that we're monitoring, mo monitoring, excuse me, we can improve. And if ran into a number of clients that, that back in the day were using uh, really expensive substrate sensors and maybe they just have one substrate sensor per room and they'd come back and tell me, Hey, like, Hey, uh, that plant grew great. And the rest of the room, uh, was not as good. It was not very good. Right. And so what was happening was the irrigation, uh, and fertilization strategies they were employing were specifically for the information that they were getting from that one sample. And, you know, I, as I've done in the, in the past, uh, with some, some growth behavior, um, population statistics, uh, I think we still have that video up on YouTube as well. Uh, we got to get enough information to make the best decision for all these plants. So simple, simple answer is could be, uh, is it cause we're growing specifically tailored to that plant? Um, but physically the sensor is not doing anything to change the plant's growth. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, Tyler Bass wrote in, what's the correlation between substrate EC and runoff EC? I find runoff to be about twice as high as my substrate EC when I push runoff. And then they gave us some numbers here, 2.8 EC feed, 3.5 substrate EC, and 6.5 runoff EC. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's going to be a very dynamic relationship. It's going to be based on, you know, what the media that you're using, the, like the um, cation exchange capacity of that media is basically going to dictate some of that information. How much runoff are you pushing? Um, are your ECs above or below what the plant is eating? And so at too many scenarios to give a great answer on that. Um, one scenario uh, might be, let's say that our substrate EC is at, at six and maybe our feed EC is at, at 3.0. Well, typically when we do get original runoff, we're going to see some of that, that built up EC get pushed out of the substrate. So it might be a little bit higher. Now, if we continue to run off, typically that's going to drop both the substrate and the runoff EC lower towards our uh, feed EC. And this is kind of one of the things that, you know, when we look at um, growing 15 years ago and maybe we didn't have as good as nutrients pretty much everyone was pushing runoff and that's because we were trying to you know reset the nutrient balance in the substrate and make sure that we had uh an ec that was close to our feed ec obviously now that we have a little bit te better technology and and some uh, nutrients tailored towards cannabis growth we we can save some nutrients in our feed we can decrease our runoff and, and let those plants use up that that substrate um, or use up those nutrients in that substrate. I, you know, I, I always usually like to get enough runoff that I can keep and check my pH just in case we do start to see an imbalance in, in nutrient composition in our substrate. Um, and that'll give you an idea on, Hey, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe a deficiency or, or an excess nutrient is occurring. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, that is it for over on YouTube for now. So I will pass it back to you, Keisha. 
Cool. Thank you, Mandy. All right. Well, on the topic of VC, uh, we actually had Jacob posted a question on YouTube recently, um, writing, what poor water EC are you targeting for the, for the first three to four week gen steer, the next three week veg steer, and the last couple weeks gen steer? Um, so, you know, we get these questions all the time. First off is uh, strain preferences. Uh, certain genetics are going to eat way harder than others. They'll perform better at, at much higher ECs and, and vice versa. Some strains uh, get really picky when we feed them too hard with nutrients. Um, you know, that being said, uh, another thing to kind of think about is what, uh, what time and relationship are we looking at poor water EC in comparison to our irrigations. Um, you know, are we at the end of the dryback where our EC is typically going to be the highest? Uh, are we right after our irrigations when we typically see your uh, EC to be the lowest? Um, so usually when we're pushing generative, we're going to have a pretty significant uh, dynamic from those two time frames, those captures, those captures of EC. Uh, this is really why you know, time series monitoring of EC is so critical so we can start to see the behavior and we get to know the daily low and high of those EC levels. Um, and so for generative, maybe on a, on a, a well-fed plant that is, uh, being steered aggressively, you know, you might see ECs in that seven to 12 or 15 range, um, you know, from after irrigation to, uh, the dry back, maybe even higher. If you're pushing really hard and you have big plants, um, maybe you don't see them quite that high. Uh, it just comes down to how aggressively do we want to steer? Um, are our plants healthy enough? Is everything else balanced to push them that hard? And what does that genetic prefer? And those are all information that, you know, you have to do run after run to get acquainted with what your strains look like when you do these types of techniques and um, taking that information and getting all into one system where you can start to look at strain run analytics and uh, cultivar um, profiles. That's how you start to make better decisions is being able to save it enough times that you know where to go with it. Um, obviously with the amount of turnover uh, on strains in the industry right now, it is tricky. Uh, you know, we've had, uh, I think Ellie was talking just the other week about how she likes to run a strain at least three times to, to get an idea of, of what it's going to produce with, before they decide, um, to keep it or cut it. If we want to just keep going through the, the timeframes, I'm happy to say, uh, you know, for vegetative, um, uh, bulking, um, you know, middle of the flower cycle, usually ECs between say five and eight, um, is, is a good range in there. And then ripening, uh, ECs are going to get pretty wild as we push big dry bags, have big plants and, and start to ripen up. So I usually, um, don't pay too much attention to EC during ripening as long as I'm, I'm not dropping it out too much and starving those plants. So that means that, uh, you know, we are going to keep a, a good amount of nutrients in there at very minimum, you know, half strength nutrients, three quarter nutrients, even preferred is, um, you know, reducing the, um, nitrogen amounts in your feed and, uh, and move into, to different forms of calcium intake.
Awesome. Thank you for that, Jason. Yeah, I love when people ask that question because it is an opportunity for us to remind them like you got to be tracking all your harvests, you got to be logging all that data. And then that's what gives you really your target ranges by cultivar. So and Arroyo can help you with that. <laughs> awesome. All right. We're going to keep it moving. This question came in, I think it was last week, but we didn't have a chance to get to it. And I thought, I think it's a good one to talk about considering the overview you just gave. Um, Andrew wrote in, should I change my sensor placement throughout the growth cycle to different plants of the same strain to get more accurate data? I usually tried not to. Um, you know, the only time that I'll move a sensor is if I'm getting some, uh, really weird readings from it. It might be indicating that, you know, there's an air pocket in that substrate. You know, I was just talking with a client today and had some, some chunkier, um, uh, cocoa. And, you know, my guess is that, Hey, every once in a while it's hitting a, a chunkier piece of cocoa when we're getting an insert and that might be creating a little bit of a cavity. Uh, and a lot of times we'll just see what those cavities is either we get drier readings than we want or wetter readings than, um, we're used to getting. And, um, that sensor reads the volume of influence that's around it. Um, the more consistent that substrate is, the easier it is to get uniform readings out of, uh, out of your array system. Um, you know, like. Rockwool, for example, most of the time when we're working with rockwool and it has a, a uniform wet up, it's going to be a little bit, um, a little bit better readings than we would get out of a, a natural substance like uh, cocoa. And yeah, I know rockwool is, uh, it is stone. It's blown stone, so it, it's natural as well. I just kind of meant in in composition as well. Um, and cocoa. Like when it gets compressed, that does help uh, help the consistency throughout the pot. But uh, you know, those are always going to be variations that we have to get used to. So, uh, you know, I'll go in and make sure that the sensor is at the right height. Uh, make sure that it is flush with uh, the media. You know, if you're using hard round pots, make sure you cut out a, a rectangle that's large enough for the sensor body to sit completely flat with the substrate with the media that's inside of that pot. Uh, any of the prongs that is exposed to air are going to cause drier readings, uh, higher ECs typically. And so, um, you know, that sensor installation, absolutely critical in evaluating whether the variation is, is actual or not, you know, whether the variation is something the plant's going to feel, um, you know, if installation looks good, check out your drippers. Um, and you know, if everything else looks good, then maybe, you know, go ahead and try it in the other side of the, the substrate or, or move it on to a different plant. But, uh, in general, I like to keep my sensors in the same plants throughout the cycle. I like to get a little bit of variation as far as spatially how they're in the room and you know, make sure I'm getting ones that are a little bit towards the corner, towards the aisle, maybe towards the, the center of the canopy as well. And, um, and that's going to help get you a, a full picture of how much differently your plants are, are operating in there. Fantastic. Thank you, Jason. And um, Andy, I think we have a question on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, you guys, for all your comments over on YouTube. Um, we had a question come in about sensor placement. Where do you place sensors in bulk or flower in general? Two or three inches from the bottom or higher? In bulk or flower general? Sorry, can you get one more time? I'm trying to understand that they're asking here. Yeah, yeah. Um, where do you place sensors in bulk or flower in general? Two or three inches from the bottom or higher? 
Uh, I'm not sure what in bulk or flower in general means, but, uh, we do provide sensor placement tools with, um, any of the Roya systems. They're going to have the different markings at the, the different heights in, in, in the substrate, depending on what size they are, uh, for you know, one gallons, we're at inch and a, I think inch and a quarter. Um, and I'd have to look up the, the rest of the exact heights. Um, so yeah, let us know what size substrate uh what kind of substrate you're working off of uh thanks mandy for showing that i was gonna go run over to my tool bag there and grab one but you you got his handle here uh yeah let us know what size substrate you're working with and um we can either read off uh off from our template or, or give you a rough idea on what uh what you should be doing yeah. Um, yeah. Let us know what you guys are working with and we can give you some more information. Um, yeah. We ju actually just got another question over on YouTube. Tyler wants to know when drying back heavy, would you expect the substrate EC sensor to read six plus at the end of dry back? I find my substrate EC never goes up five, even when I get eight or nine EC runoff. So, yep. Most of the time um, EC does climb when our water content starts to go. So, and this is why I talk about not getting too overwhelmed about high ECs, uh, you know, at the very end of dry back, a lot of times it rises way up. Uh, you know, if it's not rising up, sometimes we just have a really hungry strain and we may not be seeing nearly that increase that, um, that we do. Uh, so sometimes that can be an indicator of a little bit lower feed EC. It means that maybe you want to up your PDC, get those plants uh, at least as much nutrients as they're they're eating from the substrate. And he did come back with some um, clarification. Can't tell if I'm underfeeding. Sensor is reading low or something else. I'm in cocoa, peat, perlite mix. Yeah, so obviously kind of like we were just talking about, check sensor installation, um, take a look at some of those runoff values. Uh, you, you seeing any purpling in the stems, uh, any types of deficiencies that, that that plant might be expressing and then evaluate wha, what your feed seeds should be. Awesome. Thanks for that. And um, we did have our original question about um, where to place sensors in bulk or flower in general. Um, they came back there in one gallon cocoa pot. So I'm looking on here um, how far you should place it in um, slabs, three, six inches blocks. Inch uh, and a quarter. Jason, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jason. Should be inch and a quarter from the bottom of the uh, cocoa bag. Inch and a quarter. So it's that bottom yep, slot. You're, yep, you're totally right. Thank you for that. Um, but yeah, let us know if you need a sensor alignment tool and we can get that out to you too. Um, oh, we got more questions coming in. Greg wants to know, do you need high EC to grow good cannabis? My decades of experience tell me high EC equals bud that smokes like coal. Nice. Uh, like coal. I, I haven't been smoking much coal lately, so I like that analogy. But um, I think it's going to come down to what is in your nutrients at the time. So this is that age old white ash versus black ash kind of thing that, that we hear come up quite a bit. And really, you know, it's, it's the idea that we need to probably reduce some of the um, carbohydrate load in the plant later in flower. So during ripening, um, you know, historically a lot of people have done that by removing all the nutrients from, uh, from the, the feed at the end of the cycle. And uh, obviously the, you know, one of my, least favorite terms flushing is what people will be doing to try and get the carbohydrates out there. Uh, you know, 
providing no nutrients to the plant to reduce how much carbohydrates are in there. Well, we're also reducing the other chemical compositions that uh, allow the plant to fully mature its terpene profiles to finish off its last bit of THC that it's building out. Um, and this is a point when our plants are pretty hungry still. Um, they're very large plants and any of our, our starving um, plants can develop necrotic bud sites in there, which are much more susceptible to molds and mildews. And so, you know, the, the longer that we don't feed them, the bigger liability of, of loss due to um, bacterial growth in there. And, you know, we see a lot of nutrient companies coming on as well with, uh, with some, you know, ripening supplements where you're dropping out uh, one of your two parts of nutrients and, and supplementing it with a, a lower nitrogen replacement. And that's really in goals to kind of reduce the, the amount of carbohydrates that are available and push for, for the white smoke. So, um, to answer your question, you know, I, I think that, uh, a higher EC can definitely initiate flower set earlier on and a lot, a little bit higher EC, a lot of times can keep you getting rock hard buds, um, you know, bigger A to B ratios. Um, and that, you know, that being said, when we say higher, I mean the right amount of, of EC. So, uh, great question. Love it. Yeah, really great question. Um, I do want to go back to um, the earlier question about sensor placement. Um, they came back with, um, when I said bulk, I didn't know if there were different placements in different stages or if you leave it in the same spot all throughout flower. Do you have any feedback for that? Same spot. Boom. Quick and easy. Um, thank you for that. I think that's it for over on YouTube for now. So I'll pass it back to Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, great questions today, y'all. Thank you so much for your activity. And uh, we've got about, you know, 19 minutes left in the show. So if you have any questions for Jason today, now's the time to ask. Um, we got this question in a while back, just didn't have time to get to it. And you were speaking about cocoa a little earlier, Jason, but they, they posted a question. Can you talk about the pros and cons of cocoa slabs? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, cocoa slabs. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't yet grown in cocoa slabs. Um, so they're going to share the same advantages, uh, you know, from a single substrate to a slab, just like Rockwell, where, uh, you know, if we do lose a dripper on, on one of those three plants, at least we have five more drippers to make up for it. Uh, that shared substrate a lot of times uh, is a little bit easier to manage just because now we're accounting for the variability in three plants um, rather than just from plant to plant to plant. So. I do like slabs just because when we're sharing that root zone, it's easier for, um, for an average to be made, if you will. Um, it's, you know, it's already incorporating the growth of three plants. So maybe two of those plants are growing great and one of them's not, well, that one that's not, that information is going to be slightly buffered by the ones that are. And so anytime that, that those are in a shared substrate, we're, we're probably a little bit more likely to have some uniformity in the room. And our sensor data might be easier to interpret. That's good to know. Thank you. That was um, a great question. Yeah. A couple other things just in general about slabs is a lot of times they are a little bit easier to wet up uh, simply because we can use our irrigation systems. We let that bag to fill and then we'll cut the slits in. So you know, rather than having to make sure we're doing a dunk, we can typically do it with our, our drip systems, uh, leave it overnight to, to soak up and then start draining those bags um, so that, that's an advantage. Another advantage, probably a little bit less evaporation than we see from open top substrates. So since the bag is 
fully enclosed and the only amount that's exposed is where we've uh, put a you know, starter block on top of, uh, typically a little bit less evaporation going on. Awesome, Jason. Thank you for that. Um, Mandy, I think we've got some responses to this particular question from YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tyler wrote in, Nutrient Label has a recommended mix rate that gives me a 2.4 EC. If I have high CO2, 1200 plus PPFD, 84 degree temps, would the 2.4 EC recommendation be low? And should I consider running 3 or 3.5? Um. Yeah. So another good thing to include there, you know, is light levels uh, for it, you know, 1200 PPM for CO2, you know, we'll definitely, uh, as long as the plants are of, of age, we'll be, want to be running, you know, 900 plus micromoles, uh, PPFD, uh, I would absolutely consider running uh, a higher EC. Uh, you know, if you're in HPS, a lot of times we'll, we like to be around three, um, for LEDs, usually 3.5 plus is kind of the, the base that we go for in flowers. So, um, I would absolutely consider it. Uh, awesome. easiest Thanks way to know that. is start logging data and see, you know, how much your EC is rising and keep in mind, you know, how much runoff are we pushing and, and, and use that to evaluate whether those plants would do better with uh, a bit more concentration. Thank you for that. Um, Greg had a couple of comments over on YouTube. Cocoa slabs in Hawaii did not work as well as our black cinder lava rock on most. And then they came back. EC does go through the roof with extreme drybacks. So interesting. I love hearing about how we're growing in different parts of the world. Um, I think that that's it over on YouTube right now. So I'll pass it back to you, Keisha. Growing cannabis in lava rock. What? I love that. That's amazing. Okay. Um, Knox Tromox left a comment on our YouTube and they want to know what you think about schwazing technique. I had to look it up. According to Advanced Nutrients, schwazing involves stripping all cannabis fan leaves beneath the top two or three nodes at two key times. Once at the start of the bloom phase and again at the beginning of the third week of bloom. So thoughts on that, Jason? So usually I like to be on the side of uh, a little bit less aggressive pruning um, or deleafing on those plants. I mean, it's, it is a fine line when we think about, you know, what's the plant's response to this and, and what are our goals when we're doing it? Uh, are the other ways that I like to evaluate how much of the, the fan leaves that I'm, I'm pulling off? Um, so, you know, really the goals are to... Uh, increase the uniformity as far as environment goes. Uh, so that's keeping good airflow throughout the canopy, um, making sure that it's eliminating some of the micro environments that are, are around those leaves that will modify how it grows. Um, and then also, you know, allowing more light penetration, um, into lower buds, uh, you know, what it does for the plant, obviously, you know, these plants have a lot more leaves than they absolutely need to photosynthesize at the rates that they can, but we don't want to strip more plants than, or more leaves than, um, are providing, uh, the needed photosynthesis. Cause then we're going to slow down the, the rate of growth of that plant. And so, you know, really the fine balance comes into, you know, what is our plant spacing? What's the morphology of the plants? So the, the shape, the width, you know, how much spacing are they, are, how much room are they taking up? Uh, how much labor do we have? How, how, you know, how, how much extra money do we have to put into labor to, to do those managing things? And, um, 
and then just making sure you don't overdo it. Uh, when, when deleafing at, uh, the, the right amounts, a lot of times it can actually encourage, uh, bud growth. Uh, some plants have uh, a predatory response where, you know, if, uh, a little bit of, uh, leaves are taken, they'll actually push their energy into bud growth. But if too much leaves are taken, then this plant knows that it needs to rebuild infrastructure in order to capture enough light that it needs to mature. And so in that case, it's going to be in a regenerative uh, type of response in which it's actually producing a a vegetative response, uh, pushing energy towards leaves to try and capture some more light. Jason, you just gave me some really good info as I'm preparing for my next home grow. So I think I didn't de-leave properly last year. Did you take pictures? No. <laughs> I know. I will this year. I know. I got to do better. I got to do better. I need all to right. call you out. <laughs> That's okay. We're all living and right learning. This year, y'all. <laughs> all right. Over to you, Mandy. Was it still smokable, though, at least? Come on. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yes. yes. There's that. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, Well, Iron Armor came back. Since we're on the topic of white ass, oh oh my gosh, cut that. You guys, it's been a long week. All right, start again. Iron Armor, great question that you just wrote in over on YouTube. Since we're on the topic of white ash versus charcoal briskets, does the drying process play any role in that at all? Uh it probably does uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, that the chemical composition is going to be adjusted by how long that we, we try it. If we dry it way too fast, we're not allowing the chlorophylls in the plant to break down. Um, so quick answer. Yes. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Um, yeah. I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Fantastic. Mandy, um, y'all would be dying if you knew all the activity was going on over here with the word schwazing. We're having a great time with it. Um, It's fun to learn a new word. We love vocabulary. All right. Um, We got this question in from Sir Onstel. They would like to, uh, they were asking about the pre-harvest period. What moisture content is appropriate before chop on harvest? Yeah. So pre-harvests, also what we like to call ripening, um, you know, typically anywhere between, uh, seven to, to seven days to two weeks before the, the end of harvest and, uh, water contents. Usually we're pushing a more generative irrigation schedule. So, you know, we'll be hitting field capacity. Let's use Rockwell as an example. We'll be hitting field capacity at say 65, 70%, um, volumetric water content. And we'll let, let us go for a pretty long 22, 23 hour dry back window. And uh, a lot of times thin at the bottom there. So if we were at 70, you know, a 25% dry back would be pushing us um, down there at 45%. So those, those would be kind of the windows that I'm, that I'm using. Um, you know, if you're in a little bit smaller media, say a one gallon, you might be up in the 30% um, dry back amount. So you'd be say 70 to, um, 40%. Um, and then, you know, things like cocoa, you're going to have a little bit lower field capacity. Typically we'll see between 45 and 65% for, um, most cocos. Usually the finer cocoa has a little bit higher holding capacity than the, than the, the, um, the chunky stuff. Um, so sometimes with that chunky stuff, yeah, you got to, 
get a few more irrigations in there, push a couple of P2s just because you're, you're at the low water content at field capacity. And if you push a really heavy dry back, you're going to start to do just a tad bit of irrigation stressors when we get down below, say 20% um, volumetric water content, 20, 20, 25. It really just depends on the manufacturer and the composition of that cocoa. Be mindful of the chunky stuff, y'all. All right. Over to you, Mandy. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, we're getting a couple comments over on YouTube. So Desmood, you've given us a lot of great questions today and they wrote back my first time watching and this information is incredible. This guy knows his stuff. Thank you guys for that. Um, and then Greg McAllister came back. Um, this is a person growing in Hawaii. So Northern light seeds. Um, so they quoted some years here, um, has been using lava rock for decades, red rock in Washington state, tan in Oregon. And here in Hawaii, growers have been using our black cinders for many decades, but they came back with some prices for that. So black cinder in Hawaii is $1,100 for 32 cubic yards. Any, uh, any comments on that? I want to grow in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, how about I want to consume that in Hawaii. That sounds amazing. Yeah, let us know how uh, how the environment helps growing out there. Um, but thank you guys for all of the comments over on YouTube, and that is it for it for a second. So I'll pass it back to you, Keisha. Awesome, thank you, Mandy. All right, y'all, we got about eight minutes left in the program. So if you have any questions, be sure to drop them in your respective chats. Um, we got this right in from Carlos a while back. Um, they saw a short video of us talking about crop steering and deep water culture. They, it was only about a minute. It was on, on uh, Instagram. I'm new to growing cannabis in Thailand and I have some experience in DWC before. I'm not very good at soil. So I was wondering, is it possible to crop steer in DWC, manipulating EC since in DWC, you can't really do drybacks, right? Oh, um, I love this question because I don't know the right answer. Um, and usually, uh, what I like to think about is just how the science, uh, breaks it down in relationship to the plant. So when we're looking at deep water culture, obviously we can manipulate the, um, the EC, um, we don't have a lot of abilities to adjust how much water that plant has access to, you know, in something like aeroponics, we could, uh, change our, our, um, our misting frequency or duration to try and, and fluctuate the plant's response to water a little bit, but in deep water culture, absolutely. Um, use an EC, uh, in substrates like cocoa and rock wool, osmotic differentials, um, you know, increasing or decreasing the osmotic potential between the plant and its uh, nutrient supplying source, whether that be, you know, straight, straight fertigation water or, um, a substrate, uh, does make an effect. So, I uh, would give it a shot. Yeah. And like, yeah, Car Carlos, keep us posted. If you decide to experiment a little bit over there, let us know how it goes. Cause yeah. I mean, anything that, you know, crop steering, being able to make those decisions to help you grow better would be awesome. Okay. Mandy, you got some YouTube action? Uh, yeah. Thank you guys for your questions. Um, so Greg came back. Organic Lava Rock adds bio. Um, oh my gosh, there's so much information here. I'm sorry. I'm going to start with this question first, just so we can make sure we get through it. Tyler wants to know... 
when you talk about a 50% dryback for gin and 30% for veg, if field capacity is 60%, would a gin dryback be 30% volume on, volumetric water content and roughly 42% for veg? Sorry, I'll drop that in the chat too. Um, I'm just, I just want to clarify, like when we talk about dryback amounts, um, that's the amount of volumetric water content. So, uh, you know, it's not a percentage of, you know, how much water is in there at the time. It's an actual value of the total, um, volume of the substrate. So like I says, for Rockwell, uh, a lot of times would be 65 to 75% for field capacity. If we are pushing for, uh, you know, let's say a, an aggressive generative dryback, that'd be like 30%. Um, so we'd be at, you know, 70% before our dryback and we'd be at 40% volumetric water content, um, after the dryback. So right before the irrigation, you know, we'll do our P1s, get up to field capacity, and we'll be back there at that 70%. So, um, you know, for generative, usually like 30% would be a, a fairly aggressive. So depending on the size of the media, this is going to be different. If we're in smaller medias, it's going to obviously be a, a larger number. Um, if we're in, in smaller medias, uh, you know, it's going to be all we can do, or excuse me, if we're in larger medias, it's going to be all we can do to get up to say, you know, 20% um, on a dry back you know, for in like a three gallon cocoa pot and, uh, for, for veg, a lot of times we'll be looking more like, um, 10, 15 for in a very large media and in, in the range of probably 15 to a little bit over 20 if we're in a appropriate sized media. Awesome. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, yeah, that's it for over on YouTube. Uh, back over to you, Keisha, with our Instagram questions. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, we got this one a while back from Dave Ray. We hadn't gotten to it before today. Um, Dave Ray was wondering, any idea on the rough calculation on wet versus dry weight for the entire plant? Like if I cut down the whole plant and weigh, what's the approximate weight percentage loss to end at dry flower only weight? It's going to depend on the strain and, and how well it was grown. Um, you know, I've seen numbers as low as 12%, uh, and I've seen numbers as high as 22%. And so, uh, 100% is going to depend on how much bud I would say if we have more bud, then that's going to be a higher percentage, um, because that's accounting for more weight than stocks and stems. Uh, if you've got a, a plant that is short and loaded with colas, uh, yet again, a higher percentage if we're a big stocky plant and maybe we got some more larfier stuff on there then it's going to be a lower percentage so you know exact numbers too many variables in here for me to to give you a great idea yeah no, for real. Thank you for that, Jason. And yeah, Dave Ray, like if you've got a little bit more insight you can share with us, let's go a little bit deeper, maybe on another episode. Okay. All right, folks, we got like two minutes left. I'm going to ask this question. Um, oh, okay. Real quick. And I, I think I already know the answer to this, but Humboldt High Club wanted to know what tech we recommend in, on a soil setup. Any thoughts on that? What tech? Yeah best tech yeah yeah use the best tech um for soil setups uh it's going to depend on what size of uh soil beds that you're working with uh sometimes it's a little bit easier to use spray emitters 
on, on the soil beds. Uh, you know, if, if you can have uh, a little bit of drainage down in the bottom, maybe you want some, some gravel down towards the bottom to, to help that stuff not build up a, a boundary layer of, of water, um, a water table at the bottom. Um, yeah, that's going to help you just make sure that it is getting good aeration, that your flow through of waters, bringing some oxygen with it. Um, other stuff, you know, usual HVAC setups, or if it's a greenhouse, usual mixed light setups, um, make sure you're logging as much as you can from there. Make sure that you're using a high quality s- substrate. So your soil needs to be obviously healthy. If you're using it time over time over time, make sure you're sending out for soil samples and getting amendments that help build the health of your soil. Um, lots, lots of things you can do. I, I, when we talk about that, the technology really, when we look at something like Rockwell, we're simplifying as many elements as we can. We know exactly what's in that media most every time. Um, when we start to play with things like soil, their composition is changing over time. The, the chemical, um, makeup of what's in that soil is consistently being modified by the microbes that are growing in it. And, um, and so it's much, much more difficult to know exactly what are we working with without, without getting soil samples and, um, having a great understanding of what your amendments do and how long it takes for, um, those, those natural supplements to, to break down the soil into food or the plant. Yeah. So I feel like the best tech is the tech that helps you get the job done best. (laughs) How's that for a wrap up? Amazing. Jason, thank you so much for holding it down. Really appreciate you. Great session. Excellent questions. Thanks to everybody who submitted them. Mandy, thank you for holding down YouTube and Chris, thank you for holding down production in the back um thanks for everybody to uh who joined today or office hours we do this every thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live if you'd like to learn more about araya feel free to book a demo with us and one of our experts would be happy to walk you through all the different ways uh this production platform cannabis platform can help improve your production process um as always let us know if there's a topic you'd like cover in a future episode of office hours you can post questions anytime via the Roya app feel free to join Drop us a message in the chat. Send us an email at support.arroyaatmetergroup.com. Send us a DM. We are on all the socials and we definitely want to hear from you. We record every session. We will email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. Thanks so much, y'all. We'll see you next time. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.